I'm Adam Epstein, and I'm a dirty moderate. Hello, John Pavlovitz. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Adam. So good to be with you. Folks, before we talk about the fabulous John Pavlovitz, let's tell you who he is. He is a pastor. He is a writer. He is an activist. He is a thinker. He is a Wake Forest, North Carolina gentleman. He is committed to equality, justice, and everything good. But most of all, he's committed to all of us being better human beings, better people. So John, welcome to the podcast. So much to talk about, but I think before I even get into your amazing life and, and this the recent experience, which John recently had brain surgery, and we're certainly going to talk about that, with your new book, okay, which is called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, Finding a Faith That Makes Us Better Humans. What do you think the, because you've written a lot of stuff and I, I, we've, I've gone through it and I follow you closely. What do, you, what do you think that the main takeaway of the book is? If you had to elevator pitch it. Yeah, as know? a person of faith, it's the idea that uh, faith should make you more compassionate, not less. It should surround you with greater diversity, not less diversity. And if it, and if it doesn't do those things, then you should examine why that is. And for people who aren't religious, they understand that intuitively as well. So it's about moving people from where they are to a place of greater empathy, I think. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that's been so needed, and there's been attempts at it, you know, in our political space, mm-hmm. you know, and to take everybody back, it's fascinating to me that the non-religious Ronald Reagan makes a pact with Jerry Falwell and all these religious right conservatives on abor- for matters of abortion, gay rights, right. school choice, all the way back 40 years ago. And they've been part of a coalition, you know, as you always point out on Twitter, that is basically advocating for policies that favor the aristocracy. You know what I mean? It's like contra Jesus, contra generosity. They vote against food stamps. They vote against the poor. It doesn't matter what it is, unless it's tax cuts or something in the military industrial complex or even taking away uh, a woman's right to choose. Do you think that you in many ways are sort of like an, maybe maybe avatar is too big a word. Do you think that you're kind of like holding up the flag for the religious left? Would that be fair to say? I think by nature of the the size of the platform, and maybe that happens, but really this really began for me as a pastor who was firmly entrenched in sort of an Orthodox Christian setting and having my own personal tensions and then sharing those. And so what the writing has become, it's a place, a hub for people to gather and they, they ask some of the same questions and feel some of the same prompts that I've been sharing And so in that way, I think um, I haven't voluntarily done that, but it's just happened by default because there are not a lot of national voices counter to the religious right, as you mentioned, because they have been so organized and so large and so loud that progressive faith really doesn't have a lot of people to go to as sort of a, a, a measuring point. The thing that I've experienced, and obviously, I, you know, you were born Catholic, right? Yeah. And, and that was the beginning of your right. of your journey. And now you are a Unitarian pastor, which is really, a, is that right? Is a Unitarian? It's actually, that's just what it says on Wikipedia. And I, I was wondering why people kept saying that. I don't consider myself a Unitarian. I consider myself a theological mutt of sorts. So I'm kind of flipping <laughs> from that, the Catholic tradition. I've had years as sort of a hopeful agnostic. I've been in the Methodist church for decades. So really, it's a, a pretty... It's similar in some of the openness toward other people's belief systems. So I guess the commonalities are there. 
the commonality there. You, so what I was going to do, and this is in your book, it's so fascinating. In my travels, you know, when you meet people who consider themselves born again or evangelical or or biblical purists, you know, and you're talking politics with them, and I and as this podcast was formed to engage with a lot of different people, but through my life I've always done. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, you talk to them, and I'm, I put this to you, you know, and I know you you write about it. I'm going to read this great piece that you wrote. It's in one of your chapters. You know, you say to them, hey, you know, you're a follower of the Bible, let's just say, or Southern Baptist. This, you know, the Bible guides you, whatever, but the Bible isn't like, you know, word for word literal, right? You just live by the ideas. And and many of them, not all, say, oh no, every word of it is true. Mm. And I I am an agnostic. I was born Jewish. Um, I've been I practiced Buddhism for a long time. I still think I kind of do that. I'm an agnostic by definition, because I think atheism is a dogma too, in the way that some religions are dogmas. Mm. It's sort of like I don't know that I know, but I know that I'm unsure. And I like the idea of that uncertainty, which is also one of your themes. But if I could, I want to read what you wrote in the book about the Bible, because this is something I've retorted with. And as you know, they're their response is not always favorable yes. to a little tribal, but let me give you this. So the John writes, the Bible is not a book. It is a sprawling library of 66 separate books written over thousands of years in multiple languages by dozens of authors, many of unknown origin. The writings range from the vivid poetry of the Genesis creation account to the epic historic stories of the people of Israel to the intimate worship songs of the Psalms, distinct biographies of Jesus and the Gospels to the pastoral letters of Paul written to churches in Rome and elsewhere to the grand apocalyptic visions of Revelation. To say that one believes every word of these disparate works or that one somehow adheres to everything contained in them equally is at best an impossibility and at worst a convenient lie designed to make someone else feel morally inferior. I don't think I've ever heard it put quite as succinctly, especially for a secular audience. Is that, would you say that that's one of your big battles with your, I don't know, Christian brethren on the right? It is, Adam. And it's also the battle to have people admit that they don't they don't know the entire Bible, even if they right. say that they do. And because then you begin to pull in scriptures that, that counter, you know, that counter the scriptures that they are giving you and they don't want to address that. So there, you realize that they have a very edited version of what the Bible is. They have a selection of verses that their pastor has given them and they know how to respond to certain hot button issues. But overall, the narrative, they don't know the narrative. And because if they did, they could admit what I can admit, which is the reality right. of what the Bible is. And then you can have a dialogue. But uh, it's the desire to not have a dialogue that shows the insecurity about the Bible. Another thing that's in your book, which again, it forms all your work that I love, which I think, again, is contra them and contra every bit of dogma that the right spews, inviting in uncertainty. I love this concept and I wanted to, mm. uh, to talk about that and, that and that will actually segue us into brain surgery, but not yet. Sure. Inviting in uncertainty is central to loving God, right? Finding God, embracing a kind of unsettledness, you say, you know, like you put it, trying to wrap your arms around fog, mm-hmm. you know, and- I guess I'm always confused too, because sure, you can have faith, but the idea that these folks have no doubt that they don't even think that anything exists in the unknown. And also, like you said, if you read Exodus, right? And as I was a student of political theory, and we use the Bible a lot as that. If you read Exodus, you see see that theological framework, right? Where if you do right, God rewards you. If you do bad, God punishes you pretty much. But then you get to the book of Job, and Job endures everything despite having been everything really horrible, despite having been the good 
guy, you know, going through not not in other words, Job blows apart a certain theological framework. Right. So I mean that right there, and they love to go about Job and all these books, and it's like to your point about reading it, well, A, you're not linking them together accurately from the way I see it. But B, you're not even open to the uncertainty of the uncertainty that's in the passages you're reading. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I don't know. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that surety is is what binds the community together. It is a community not of theology, but of being certain of something. And I always say organized religion and organized crime are very similar, that they're <laughs> fiercely loving. But if you're in the family, but the moment you are, are outside at all, then your horse head's in the bed yeah. in concrete shoes. Honor among thieves, I guess in this case, honor among, I don't know, radical Christians. Yeah, right? and that's, you know, that's why I've become sort of, uh, they feel, uh, these these Christians consider me an adversary of some sorts, but only because I ask the questions and remind them that it's okay to have those questions. It's rarely my declarative statements that upset them. It's saying, hey, are you, what do you think about hell? Are you actually sure? Because if God is love, this, or I talk about prayer or all these things. And so you realize that people are really, it's a house of cards that many people do not want you to go and start moving things around on them. Right. To that end, you know, the, un- the end of uncertainty, you've just had a major life experience, which you've, I, I think is having had brain surgery. It's been, a, it was very interesting to learn about, to talk about. I mean, it's so intertwined also in a way it feels so spiritual, you know, you mm-hmm. and what your work is, your devotion in a way to, you know, to the idea of a, a compassionate faith, you know, and and mm-hmm. and how that can make you a better person. And certainly illness does that. Tell us a little bit about how you were diagnosed, when you were, and the sort of chain of events. Sure. It was it was really only about three months ago that I said I'm sure you've never spoke about this. No, <laughs> I you know, I didn't I've written a lot about it, but haven't talked too much because I'm only six weeks out. But you know, right. three months ago had some irregular blood work that didn't look quite right and got an MRI and they said, here's what we think it's this kind of certain kind of tumor, and did further blood work. And really within probably five or six weeks, I was scheduled for surgery. So October first. I went in and had this wow. benign tumor. It's benign, but it needs to be removed because of the damage that it's doing to my body. And so I'm six weeks out. So just the fact that I'm able to be here with you and, you know, if I've said anything incoherent, I'm going to blame that. No, I'm going to blame that on anesthesia fog. And, um, but really, I mean, it's, they go up through your nasal cavity. So all my wounds are inside here and it's really something. So I'm, I'm able to drive and right and walk wow. the dogs and exercise so it's fantastic so we've got three weeks to wait to find out if they got all the tumor and then we see kind of what's ahead if they didn't right now you went in for blood work were you just not feeling well is that what it yeah, was I had a breakthrough case a- of covid we had three breakthrough cases in our family and that, that was oh, just wow. a lingering uh, fatigue and so we had that blood work done and really and it, once we found out that surgery was necessary i you know, I talked to my wife, we've been married 25 years, almost 25 years. And we're looking at this is how we do this work. I've been very open about my life and share things in real time, grief of my father, election stuff. And I just said, let's invite people into this and they'll walk with us. And that's what the last, uh, you know, few weeks has been like, well, the past three months, really. Right. And it's, it's so, um, uh, the message of it in a way, right. The, the unknown gives you more faith. Yeah. You know, it kind of emboldens your faith. Do you feel that way after this experience? I think what, what for me is it confirms some things that I believe about the the urgency, the fragility of this life, the urgency about living here and living well. 
and it's reinforced all the things that I write about and the connection, you know, that's been the most powerful thing, Adam, is that this group of people who I don't really see regularly, but seeing the reciprocal nature of virtual community, how powerful it's been. And that's been one of the stories here, this disparate group of people, some are religious, some aren't, but they kind of gathered around me and encouraged me through this. It's been great. No, that's, that's, that's amazing. And I, I, uh, as I said to you before we started, I'm really taken with your phrase, the humane middle. Mm-hmm. And, and what I, and I'm taken with it because it's a great phrase. And we here at Dirty Moderate pride ourselves on finding a middle ground that actually is just a representation of good values. Right. And what I like about the humane middle is it's sort of, again, you know, it's not a question of are you a leftist, are you a conservative, are you a moderate? It, you, you're, it feels like a uh, statement of what you feel is good for humanity, good for justice, good for equality, yes. and that what be, might be considered far left actually should sort of be in a way, or should sort of inform and undergird a roadmap for us, a roadmap where we care about each other. You know, we, we try to look out for one another. We've learned the painful lessons of 2020 mm-hmm. of people just feeling that Anything about public safety somehow is an infringement on their freedom when the opposite is true. It's been quite a saga to watch happen, especially to watch conservatives now, uh, you know, be (laughs) not like the idea that private businesses, those same private businesses that said, hey, I don't want to bake a gay wedding cake, you know, are going to enforce mandates. It's just... You know, t- talk about that. I mean, that whole nexus. Yeah, the heart of it is in that empathy has to be at the center. And what you talked about, the religious right, what the, that movement began to do is there's a cruelty now associated with it. You combine Trumpism with the religious right, and you've got this this religion where not only do I not want to help you, but I want to almost do you harm. And right. and that's the thing that's inexplicable as someone who has been a person of faith. There's no math that makes sense of, about that. And I think that's the place where we find ourselves. The book was written in the middle of the pandemic. I started in March of 2020 wow. and was writing a very different book, but started to look around and realize, okay, this anti-mask stuff, this, uh, you know, pandemic denying this um, anti-Black Lives Matter stuff. It was all coalescing around supposedly, um, well, professed Christians who were white, that this was coming from the people of Jesus. And that didn't make any sense to me. So again, I said, well, I really need to write a different book. I need to respond to this in real time and filter all these things, the election through the lens of my faith. Yeah. I mean, I love the term theological mutt that you use, you know, so you're, you know, this very, very faithful uh, Catholic altar boy, right? And then you have this journey and you go to sort of as a teen, you're sort of in your meandering period, right? And then you sort of become like, you put hopefully agnostic, then defiantly atheistic. And that's what I want to ask Mm. you about, because you've come back around to God and we'll talk exactly about what God is in a second, but what when you were an atheist well a how did you get there but also why did you leave there well admittedly it was probably an afternoon or so it was like eight hours (laughs) for me there was a period where i think i once you deconstruct that faith or you you leave that faith sometimes everything you do becomes opposition to that faith it's a response that you want to distance yourself as far as you can it's very reactionary i think there was a time when that the anger at what I had walked through or some of the dysfunction, I then responded oppositely and uh, in the opposite direction. And I think that was why I would have defined myself that way. But really the agnostic part was the overriding thing that said, I'm tired of saying that I know 
when I don't know. So that was that was a little bit of that journey. When you you know when I was in Buddhism, right, and and there were a lot of people that had come to Buddhism. This was a Japanese form of Buddhism that uh, had attracted people from other faiths. Mm. One of the leaders, it was a lay organization, or is, and they this particular person had been a pretty devout Christian. And they found Buddhism for a number of reasons. And they would say, you know, because Buddhism is about everything's in here. There is no claim to divine intercession, or at least the Buddhism that I practiced, unlike the, you know, Abrahamic religions or other religions. It's all here. You know, you, you were op- operating from that space. And as he put it, the kingdom of heaven is within you. He used that as the analog, you know, from Christianity. Yeah. And I, I bring this up to ask you, you know, when you say God, right, for you, what is God? Mm. Who is God? How does God operate? I'm really, I'm actually just genuinely fascinated because I'm not a believer and I'd love to, but your book was so touching to me in terms of my own spiritual journey and constant questioning. I would love to hear you articulate it for us. Yeah. Well, that, that idea of what I think God is really, um, it, it's, a, it's a moving fluid thing. And so the, that's why I called the book, If God is Love. It's really saying, okay, I want to ask you, if you believe this to be true, then what are how what is your response? Um, for me, God or the sense of the divine has always been the whatever propels me into the lives of other people and and seeks to make that that life easier. Uh, so the idea of shalom it, for me growing up wasn't just taking away the absence of bad, but giving people an abundance of good. So when I see people living sacrificially and and and, and interdependence that defies some sort of logic, um, that's where God is for me. So I try to just. And that's really been the interesting thing for me is that I don't need to define myself by a particular tradition. I just, and even in my prayers, I used to pray, you know, hey, God, fix this and God do that and God smite them. And now it's my prayers are, okay, I, I know how I want to respond to this situation. I'm placed at this place in time in the history of the planet. Let me be an agent for kindness and compassion and mercy. And God fuels that in whatever way that I, yeah, I can't wrap my brain around it, but just that's that's where I am. That's where, yeah. Well, it, it, I think it's like the, you have a great line in the book uh, that uh, theology is only valid to the degree that your life is loving, yeah. right? That if you're um, you don't know any really much of anything, but you do know that being a person of faith and loving God means you shouldn't be a jerk, yeah. which transitions us to the biggest jerk and jerk is kind uh, to ever sit in the Oval Office to ever represent this country mm-hmm. to destroy the party of Abe Lincoln to assault the rule of law, mm. cruelty being the point. The listeners, once they start to hear this, will know, you know, I always have al- aligned myself with the Democrats. I'm on team blue as long as the Republican Party is an authoritarian cult, but I don't Ooh. consider myself a Democrat. I'm a moderate and I have a lot of different positions that I think yep. uh, I don't want to be compartmentalized into. However, I think our two-party democracy is in such trouble that there's no alternative but to see to it that the Democrats hold power. And to your point, to your recent article or blog, MAGA would have canceled Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, they would have. Yeah. And and I know you're, you know, you're a great fighter on Twitter, you know, reminding people of all these things, all the values that you see corroded by the right, mm-hmm. uh, making heroes of outright villains, making excuses for things that if they actually connected to faith, they wouldn't be able to, yeah. you know, is, is, is this unholy alliance? Cause Trump, the alliance with Trump, I mean, Reagan was one thing. He was not religious. Yeah. Uh, and in retrospect, uh, I don't like his presidency, but you know, by, by comparison, it's sort of a little more benign, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. But, but 
I guess I want to ask you or just discuss with you is this this unholy alliance that continues where right wing religious people align with the Republican Party. Is it just about power for these people? Forget Trump. Trump stands for nothing. But they, you know, and he jollies them along, as William Sapphire once said about the religious right in the 80s. Mm. But what what is this? What what are they after? I mean, we know the general Mitch McConnell wanted judges. He wanted power. He wanted it. That's what he wanted. Okay, we know that ideologically these people have nothing to say other than to make sure they don't upset Donald Trump, even as he continues to lie and destroy democracy. So what is the end game now? I mean, Ralph Reed's not as prominent as he once was. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that a whole Brent Bazell? All those guys are older now. I just I just thought that's an interesting thing to talk about. Like, what what are they after? Yeah, I think in the higher in the politicians, it's about power. I think in the rank and file and the voters it's really about a leveraged fear. So they've been in a theology that is uh, that is adversarial, that needs an enemy, that needs right. a, you know an encroaching threat. And you get that kind of politics and that theology, and you sit people in there for decades. They are so addled by fear of white people or gay people that that they well, you're, you don't act well when you're terrified. And I think you what we see is the net result of decades of people being living under that sort of. Um, constant urgency, constant threat, and then they're not thinking clearly anymore. And so they can align with someone like Donald Trump, or they can they can cheer for Kyle Rittenhouse. It's it becomes a disconnect that only you can see from the outside, and that's what I'm constantly trying to do. You know, I love I love people. I love people who are who don't vote Democrat. I'm trying to tell the, the these these Trumpers I'm actually for you in a way that you never will be. That the Republican Party is not. But you have to get past their own fear to show them that diversity is actually better. An interdependent community benefits all of us, and um, they can't see it. Yeah. I mean, in the early days of the religious right, a lot of people forget this or don't even know it is, you know, one of the things – they were like there was abortion always. It used to be school prayer, and they sort of have given up on yeah. that. And then, of course, gay rights, which was you know has made thankfully has made so much progress in the last decade. But also this idea of school choice, where they were perfectly happy to create private academies that were all white, so they could segregate. Yeah. This goes back to the seventies, even you right. know, where they would say they were get they were actually against forced busing and integration, and then they used the guise of well, we want school choice. We'll create a parochial institution where we will, I guess, indoctrinate you. Yes, and. You know, now school choice is, and, and I think there's some, not that kind of school choice, but school choice has morphed into, you know, shouldn't kids in blighted areas be able to go to a better charter school than, let's say, a public school mm-hmm. having nothing to do with religion. Right. But the abortion issue, I bring around to say this to come around to that, is seems to be the one holy grail. And I think they're, they're salivating now based on the Texas law, even if the Supreme Court invalidates that, you know, they're hearing this Mississippi case that after 15 weeks, it's a life. Yes. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen, but certainly the Coney Barretts and the uh, Kavanaugh's and certainly Alito and Thomas. I don't know about Gorsuch because mm-hmm. he authored that terrific gay rights opinion, but I'm assuming are likely to, you know, undermine Roe, you know, by virtue of their decision. And I I always sort of feel that with these one issue voters, that's the thing that animates them. They froth at the mouth and they're so tribal about yeah. it that if you and you discuss this, too, and you you challenge them on it. And the vitriol and venom that is spewed based on that by just explaining that someone has a choice or people, you know, you can not believe in abortion, but still it shouldn't be the matter of government. Do you think abortion is the holy grail there? I mean, for the real purists who don't, who really can't, they would hear you and they can't even see outside of what they believe. 
believe, you know? Yeah, I think, Adam, it's the, the cleanest form of activism. It's it's sort of easy morality. People can say, well, I'm for life, and, and they can have a stance that really doesn't require them to change at all, to to give, uh, to be generous toward people, uh, to love people who they don't like because they can sort of idealize what an embryo is. And they, yeah, once once the child's born, they don't want to help the child. That's the craziest That's thing. It. They don't do anything. And you really, the more I share that, the angrier people get, but it's because you're showing them a mirror and you're saying, okay, if they're at the border, you have disdain for them. If they need healthcare, you want nothing to do with them. And Muslim, on and on and on, it's only in the womb that life seems to be sacred to them and that's just uh it's just a, a a tragedy really that this issue has been leveraged in the way that it has right and you know the irony right i'm a huge first amendment guy i'm sure you are too we all should be you know is that the freedom of religion right and the freedom from religion are both so important and i whenever i get into debates i say guys I am not a religious person, but I am so committed to our First Amendment that I literally will fight to make sure you have freedom to worship. But guess what? The second part of that is that I am free from your belief system, you know, it to the extent that it affects, I mean, law and society. I know everybody's, you know, your values inform your views, of course. And they don't quite understand that. It's this sort of like, we have to have certain quote unquote Christian principles injected into the body politic, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's the values of the country, which or are the values of the country, which they're not. That's what the founders did. That's not what they did. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, you know, they don't understand that that's a theocratic idea. And when you say that, you say, hey, you know who else does that? Iran, yeah. you know, they blasphemer. We're not Muslim, you know, and they go into this whole, I've had many, I'm, I'm sure you've had more, but conversations and I, they don't understand that even the hardcore agnostic or atheist who is, who believes in freedom is protecting their freedom to believe, but it doesn't work both ways, does it? No. And what you realize is their, their knowledge of the Bible and the constitution, it's the same. They, they have a real cursory understanding, but they don't really get the gist of the fundamental ideas there because if they did, they would realize that Donald Trump and the Republican party are antithetical to both of those entities somehow. And they're, they're taking away all the essential liberties that are, that the teachings of Jesus and the constitution promise. And, uh, uh, that's the sad part. You're trying to fight for them and you end up fighting with them. Right. And, you know, the interesting thing is that if you've got a Republican politician, the average Republican politician, and they come from like, usually the South, but not always, you know, they have to sort of toe this religious line. Mm-hmm. But somehow the fascinating thing, and I think of Roy Moore, you know, the disgraced yeah. judge who ran against Doug Jones and a con- convicted pedophile. I think he was convicted. Somehow, if you're a sinner in their image or in their eyes, that's okay. You can be all those things. You could have had your wife could have an abortion, Donald Trump, that whole idea. But somehow if it's a progressive or a moderate person who's, you know, saying, listen, you know, we don't believe in, in, in the, in Reaganism or Trumpism or what now it's nothing, nothingism, yes. right. They, they have a hard time seeing that those things go together. And it's okay. Roy, Roy Moore's fine. But if somebody is openly gay and wants to, you know, have their partner at their side in a swearing-in ceremony, mm-hmm. that's blasphemous. That disconnect to me is something. See, I don't know how you, and I don't know if there's an answer, how you fight that. I, you have a macro fight and you're coming at it so beautifully, but it's not all on your shoulders. But how do you bridge that gap? The only hope that I see or the hope that I see in that area is realizing that when I was in a megachurch and I wrote a blog post called If I Have Gay Children and and I, I realized most many of my church was going to be really upset. But then I 
came to find out that there were so many of them who were in all different stages of understanding or thinking about the issue of LGBTQ rights. And that, and so I, the longer I spoke, I realized, okay, I pulled that middle from that particular community. And there were people on the far right who were never going to come, but there were a large number of people who are still with me six years later, kind of reading, engaging. That's the only hope. The hope is there, there are some people we're never going to reach with rational thought, with uh, the words of Jesus, with whatever reason. Um, but we are going to reach their friends or their cousins or, or their ex-wives. And so what we do is we try to keep that conversation going. I never wanted to be the one trying to beat the drum for religion. I want to beat the drum for empathy. And if that comes through your religious beliefs, or if you're non-religious through the civic life, that's what we should be doing. Um, and I think we're, we're still able to do that. We're just going to have to label it something else. Yeah. I mean, interesting to your point, and I certainly hope so as a gay man, but I can't, who knows in this country what's going on. A recent Pew research poll, and there's been a few of these, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, these data points, is that younger Christian voters who still identify as Republican are at least agnostic, to use our favorite word, or pro-LGBTQ rights. So there's this generational shift going on where they yeah. are hewing to a certain faith, uh, maybe still adhere to certain conservative principles free of theology yep. that I think some of which have value, old line conservative principles, um, but yet they're not hostile to the social justice movements. Um, what's been your experience with that? I guess that's sort of a view, of, a lot of that is what you're saying. Some of the people that came along with you um, from the megachurch, their relatives. Uh, did you see that among youth? Did you see more acceptance? You know, unless someone's in a really, you know, a, a traditional conservative religious environment right now, I think younger people simply LGBTQ rights, it's not an issue for them. You know, I've got a 12 right. and 16 year old. And even if they, I know. they talk to their friends and they say, this is ridiculous. We don't even talk about <laughs> this, which is beautiful. But then you realize this weaponized religion, these people are digging in their heels even more. And I think the story, you know, if the 2016 election goes differently, we're seeing this evangelical thing as the dying dinosaur it is, as it is. And I think the, the leadership is having that last grasp of power. But if we could survive that, I think the younger generation is going to, would want nothing of these things. Um, we just have to get there. Yeah, no, we have to, we have to get there. And it's, that is, you know, that is an encouraging thing um, because I'm actually of the mindset and I, you know, we don't, I don't know if the Republican party can resurrect if there, if a third party actually could happen, mm -hmm. you know, as someone who's politically homeless, I struggle with it all the time, but I have always said this. And I said the same, I say the same thing for any historically marginalized group. And it's an ideal. Mm -hmm. We only have a two party system. We are not a parliamentary democracy. We don't, we could use four parties. We should have far left, left, you know, yes. middle, you know, we don't have that. Okay. We have this two party system and this two party system for as long as I, for the foreseeable future, that's what we have. So it would be it would be in the ideal world advantageous for the Republican Party to have to speak not manipulatively and not uh, disingenuously to LGBTQ communities in in its open way. Certainly, less government that mm -hmm. goes along, but African American communities. Obviously, they are making inroads with Latino communities, but they're making inroads with the anti-abortion stuff. Yeah. My point being is, we're a better country, and I would argue, uh, I love you're saying, stay teachable. 
you know, because you'll be able to stay more loving. I think if more people are teachable and actually the Republican Party, not the Trump Republican Party, mm-hmm. but a party that would be Teddy Roosevelt or something in that Lincolnian Eisenhower line, yeah. you know, would be responsive to all people. I know a lot of Democrats don't like this. I'm not rooting for the Republican Party, but I'm rooting for there to be a center-right party uh, to counter the Democratic Party, but not a cult, not an authoritarian movement, and not a you know a fascist drive to apocalypse. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, Adam. People think that I'm somehow the flag waver for the Democrats, and you know, and I was writing six years ago. <clears throat> I didn't even write about politics, and I didn't never would mention a political party necessarily or a a politician by name it's only when trump started to run that i said there is an alliance here with with the right that is dangerous with the christian right and i need to speak explicitly into this um and that's really the truth is that i want government that has a sense of overarching humanity for the that's there for the common good and it's right now it's either fascism or the Democrats, you know, it's really right. just preserving the Republic. And I try to remind people I'm here. This is a safety issue. We're trying to save a way of life that is sustainable. It's, it's so true. And it's interesting strategically too, to me. And I wonder if it, it generationally, again, it won't shift that the Republicans, you know, would see the numbers and go, if we were to suddenly veer on social issues so many people, just the general person, oh, I want lower taxes, but I want to be pro-choice. You know, you hear yeah. that kind of, that sort of fiscal conservative, socially liberal conjoining a lot. Yeah. That being said, it might be reductive, but but I wonder if, they just can't believe they can't see the, the strategy ahead and say, wow, wouldn't that be great? Doesn't that go along with our our freedom ideas. And I'm, I wonder if generally generationally that will change. So recently the RNC announced that they're doing a, 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 with the log cabin Republicans who historically have been sort of a sellouts, mm. but it's sort of pride coalition coming up. They've never done this before, uh, sort of global pride thing. Yeah. And it's through the RNC. It's not through some affiliate. Um, and I thought it was interesting because I wonder is somebody smelling the tea leaves over there? Mm. You know, I mean, again, it's all cynical, but you know, Trump, for as awful as he is, and certainly uh, what he did to the trans community is unforgivable in, mm. you know, military ban and all that. But really, his administration was horrible, but he verbally didn't gay bait the way he was racist. It was kind of interesting. He sort of yeah. steered away from that. He said he was, you know, no problem with people to judge and Chastin. You know, he had no problem really with gay rights. He even said that the 2016 convention, that doesn't excuse what Mike Pence and all those crazy people did. Sure. But I wonder if someone at the RNC, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm just being idealistic, you know, sees the need for that because how are they going to have a pride coalition? I mean, who's going to that? Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> Jim Jordan without his jacket. No, I just wonder, you know, who, who are, who are these galleries? Is that gallery of clowns and reprobates, rogues? Yes. You know, what do you think about that? Do you have any insight? I think, you know, growing up, I was a registered, I've been a registered independent since I was, you know, old enough to vote. And I, because I always realized that there was beauty in that sort of exchange and that's that seeking of compromise when people are both motivated for the best of the body that's there. And I I think what Trump did was he somehow turned off the people's instincts for what is reasonable and what is humane. And it's almost, I was shocked that more Republicans didn't push back against Trump and dig in and find some 
and craft a Republican Party that is not dependent on one human being. And I think if that human being is gone and that family is gone, what you would see is the Republican Party begin to veer into a much more um, reasonable um, platform. But when you've got the Marjorie Taylor Greens and you've got the Lauren Boberts, you know, they're, they're tied to Trump. They're all wrapped up. So you've got to get some time for him to to be out of that picture. And hopefully that happens. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so fascinating in that, in that alliance too, is that in my, you know, in my travels, there's certainly no Trump voters. I don't know anybody really hardcore MAGA, but I've met a few people mm-hmm. and the one thing they it's so fascinating, you know, it sort of blows apart. We always thought, I don't see them having any problems um, with anti-immigrant rhetoric and all of that stuff, you know, close the borders or, you know, put them in kill, whatever, you know, but they, the people I've talked to, and I don't think it's, I don't think they're in my face. I think they're genuinely just fine with gay rights. It's an interest. Mm-hmm. So to your point, there, there might be an opening there for that, but it's interesting that the racism and the sexism doesn't go necessarily along with the homophobia, at least in my travels. I've been surprised um, that they, but I'm not saying that they're going to be in the pride march, but yeah, right. I actually think, yeah, but I think that if they had a conservative candidate who hewed to their quote unquote, unchristian values, but still champion gay rights. I think they might be okay with that. That's not their issue. That's they're not there. They're, they're froth at the mouth about other things, but that's, you know, it's anecdotal. It's not a representative sample, right. but I, I have found that. And I, is that encouraging? I don't know. Yeah. I, I've tried to uh, stop even wondering if I can predict where they're going to go. Um, because what, what that, you know, Trump didn't create a lot of this. Obviously he, he revealed it. He emboldened it. Trump's the vomiting up of all this. He is. Yeah, and I think that's been that's been revelatory. It's been helpful for us. I think the story for a lot of this is in the work that I do is the relational collateral damage of this. You know, the families and friendships that are just completely severed because of what the leader was actually doing. You know, we've always had um, deep differences in the parties, but we've rarely had someone at the top who is actively stoking that separation and that all or nothing and proposition. And that's really um, done some damage. Yeah. I mean, listen, to use the point, you say that they've built their movement, right. Uh, And, and, and they, they full of, full of Christians, or they've put, you know, hardcore Christianity with this one man, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? At the expense of all else. And actually you hear it all the time. Well, God put Trump there and God wanted Trump elected and God did this. And, right. and, and you're right. MAGA would have canceled Jesus. They would have not, they would have looked at that brown skin Jew, mm-hmm. you know, who wanted to feed the poor and, um, you know, and say, get the hell out of here. You know what I mean? Or they probably wouldn't admit that he's that anyway, but you know, that he was, yeah, and that's right. you know, they have this, they have this vision and I, to me, it's just, it's just, it's, it's such a cult that it, again, I come back to, it feels apocalyptic to me. I mean, I don't know what their end game is. You know what I mean? They just want to burn the whole democracy to the ground for Donald Trump. This has been, I think everybody's conundrum when they, if you're a normal fair-minded person, what the hell is in the Kool-Aid? Right? It is so sad. And there's a sense of disbelief that people, rational people are saying, you know, I used to rely on this person for for conversation that was tethered to reality and we could debate the issues and talk about facts. And those are things that Trump has somehow made irrelevant. Right. So the fake news stuff and looking at the pandemic, it's just inexplicable. You know, I had this surgery. I'm sitting I'm laying there in the ICU and my ICU nurses are talking to me about 
you know, one nurse said, these COVID patients, I was not prepared for this. My whole career, I was never prepared for the how sick they are, how long they're here, and even if they if they do get out at all. And she said, and still people won't do the right thing. And this is what somehow has happened to a large group of people. They have become so delusional that they're fighting for someone who has doesn't have their best interest in mind, and they're actively harming and in the name of Jesus. And so there's so much there. Yeah. I mean, I, and again, you know, the two, the two things that we, you know, we've talked about the humane middle, which I love, you know, staying teachable, you know, because it allows you to be more loving, but back to the, you know, to sort of bring this full circle to end up here, faith is aspiration. Yeah. You know, I mean, not just, not just, um, not just evidence, but as aspiration. I, I wonder if everything we're talking about in the best way, you know, it's, it would be aspirational in the sense that we could aspire to be a, a society mm-hmm. that is both welcome to faith-based people and, and non-faith-based people, but that faith is always doing better. Faith is always learning. I, that's what I think your book is after. You know, Faith yeah. is always aspiring as a concept to be more welcoming, be more loving, be more open. It's not static. It's that's dynamic. Right. It, it evolves because um, human beings evolve. And rethink. And rethinking something doesn't mean that you are no longer, um, or you no longer swear fidelity to your church or your synagogue. It, rethinking means you're reappraising what faith is about and how faith changes. Don't That's you? That's right. And the heart of the book for me and, and the work that I do is all of that. Then it has to get expressed through my life in a life that is kinder and more generous and more loving because if it doesn't then it's really a waste of time and energy so i i think that's it it's about the search for because it's a better way to live i try to tell people whether you're religious or not but it's usually right now i'm talking to a group of people who think they're religious it's actually so much better to be collaborative with people than competitive with people it's so much better when you when you want others to succeed and when you don't think that someone else's gain is your loss it's a better way to live and that's what i'm trying to help them do yeah i want this book to be read widely uh because i think there are very few books that preach kind of a secular healing mm. through a, for lack of a better word, theological lens, not a dogmatic lens. Right. And I think that that's a great recipe for what you say. And I say, as we end here to invite in uncertainty that helps you love God more and love, you love yourself, which in turn helps you love others. That's Buddhist too. You know, you have to find peace here to find peace there. That's right. I want to thank you for helping me invite in some more uncertainty on mm. my own spiritual journey and to everybody listening um, you need to read if god is love don't be a jerk finding a faith that makes us better humans uh john pavlovitz i could talk to you for hours but alas our time is up uh i thank you for being part of the program look forward to talking to you again thanks so much for your time really appreciate you 